go ahead. Okay. Let's begin with the word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us a way to escape the vicious cycle of sin that we see in the book of Judges. And we are so thankful that you have provided us for a, a deliverer who can rescue us from the threat of eternal death. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn in this book. We thank you that we do have this true deliverer, this true judge of righteousness on our behalf. We ask that you will help us to glean the lessons that we can learn from this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus Christ, our deliverer, judge. Unlike Joshua, whose title is simply the name of a prominent individual, judges is named after office, judge, which is put in the plural. In Hebrew Bibles, the book is called Shoftim, Judges, the plural of Shophet. The word can also be translated leaders or chieftains or even warriors. The judges were something like guerrilla commanders. In our culture, we, we think of judges as being people wearing black robes and in a courtroom, sitting at a desk with a gavel. Well, that's, that's not the kind of judges we're talking about here. So we'll look at the flight, the facts, the uh, landmarks, the itinerary, the gospel, the history, and the trouble tips. The author of Judges is unknown. Some attribute the book to Samuel, but the latter portions at least were likely completed by someone else. He talks about how in those days there was no king in Israel. The implication is that when these latter parts were written, there was a king in Israel. Twelve judges provided leadership and deliverance during a chaotic period characterized by a cycle of sin. Rebellion against God, retribution by God, repentance toward God, and the restoration from God. Some say that there were 13 judges because they count Abimelech, the son of Gideon. But Abimelech wasn't really a judge. He, he proclaimed himself king. But he certainly wasn't a, a deliverer that God raised up to deliver Israel because he didn't deliver Israel. The only people that he killed were his fellow Israelites. His father Gideon had many wives and concubines, and so he, he killed 70 of his brothers just so he could be sure that he wouldn't have a rival. In those days, there was no Joshua in Israel. That's the, that's the first part of the book. Uh, 1, 1 through 3, 6. In those days, there were judges in Israel. That's the, the main part of the book, the 3, 7 through 16, 31. And then in those days, there was no king in Israel. That's the last part of the book, 17, 1 through 21, 25. As far as the gospel is concerned, it gives us a series of case studies on mankind's inability to break the cycle of sin. The imperfect deliverers and judges anticipate and give contrast to the eventual deliverer who would offer himself for the nation. Judges covers more than 300 years of history, roughly the years from Joshua's death around 1380 B.C., 
to when Saul's anointed king in around 1050 BC. As far as the travel tips, the, the lessons that we can learn, well, there are, there are really two big ones. One, one is that God often uses the least likely people to accomplish his work. And we'll see that that is certainly true. Judges makes it clear again and again that sin has consequences. Tragic consequences. In the same way that we can talk about major prophets versus minor prophets, in the sense that Scripture devotes more space to prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and much less space to the minor prophets, we can also say that there are major judges and minor judges. For example, the Bible devotes four whole chapters to telling us the story of Samson. But it only gives us one verse about Shamgar. So there, there are differences between the, the major judges and minor judges. The, the major judges that the book devotes most of its space to. As I mentioned before, the judges are unlikely heroes. We're, we're told in, uh, in 1 Corinthians that, that God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. And boy, was that certainly true with the judges. The judges were often from anomalous subordinate, from an anomalous subordinate, subordinate segment of society. Ehud is a left-hander in a world of right-handers. Deborah is a woman in a world of men. Gideon is the youngest son in a world of older brothers. Jephthah is the son of a harlot in a world of legitimate children. Samson is a non-shaving, non-intoxicant imbibing ascetic Nazarite in a world of normal people. The Judges Cycle. In the book of Judges, Israel goes through this cycle, which becomes tiresome because they just keep going through the same cycle over and over again. First, the Israelites sin. They do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Then they go into servitude. God allows the nation to be conquered and oppressed by a neighboring nation. Then they cry out to God, supplication. He will cry out to God. And then finally, there's salvation. God sends a judge to deliver the Israelites. Then after a while, they slip back into sin again, and the cycle begins all over again. There are many different words that you can use to describe this cycle. And some of the diagrams that you see on the cycle, some of them will go clockwise and some will go counterclockwise, but don't worry about that. They all get the message across. Here's one diagram which shows apostasy, servitude, supplication, and salvation. This is the, the cycle that Israel keeps going through in the book. This is another diagram. Uh, which shows that the people sinned, and God judged, and people cried out, God delivered, and the people returned to sin. So they, they keep going through this cycle. Uh, this is the one that I like, because just because I like alliteration. And so it talks about sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence. And the six acts that you see in the middle, there are six times in the book of Judges that Israel goes through this cycle. 
six times. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the territory of the judges. The judges were not national leaders. They didn't rule over all of Israel. The judges were regional leaders. They just ruled over one tribe or, or a few tribes. And sometimes two judges were, were ruling simultaneously in different parts of Israel. That's important to understand when you try to figure out the chronology of, Israel, of the book of Judges. Because as you read through the book of Judges, you might think, well, first this judge ruled, then this judge ruled, and then this judge ruled, and, and you want to arrange them all sequentially. But if you add up all of the periods of oppression and the, the times that the judges ruled, you come up with 410 years. And there simply isn't room for that much time. Because at one end, you have the Exodus, the 40 years in the wilderness, then Joshua and the elders who all lived him. And at the other end, you have um, the rule of, of King Saul, the first king of Israel, and then you have the rule of David, second king of Israel, and then Solomon. And the Bible tells us that there were 480 years from the time of the Exodus to the, time, to the building of the temple in Solomon's time. So you need to understand that there was some overlap between the judges. So when you, when you figure this all out, it's only about 330 years rather than 410. Now here's, here's a diagram of um, a map of the judges in Israel. What I like about this map is that the, the major judges, judges and minor judges are, are color-coded. So that the, the ones in blue, they're the, they're the minor judges. And the ones in red, they're the major judges. And as you can see, the judges are dispersed throughout Israel. And eventually, I'll, I'll get this, these PowerPoints up onto the, the website. So if you want to look at them more closely. Uh, here's another map of, of the judges. There are little white rectangles here. So you, you can see how the judges are dispersed throughout Israel. And what's interesting about this map is that it not only shows the judges, but if you, if you look closely, there are little green circles around each of the judges. That's the territory that they ruled. So they just they ruled a relatively small territory. They didn't rule over all of Israel. I mentioned that there, there were six cycles in the book of Judges. And there I listed the oppressors, the, the enemies that were ruling over Israel after they had sinned, and then the judges. And you'll notice that there's, a, there's one major judge in each cycle, but there can be one or more minor judges. So in the first cycle, we have Othniel. In the second cycle, the major judge is Ehud, but the, but the minor judge is Shamgar. And then in the next cycle is Deborah. And then the next cycle is Gideon, and there, there are two minor judges, Tola and Yair. And then in the next cycle we have Jephthah, who's the main judge, the major judge. And then he's followed by three minor judges, Imzan, Helon, and Abdon. And then in the sixth cycle we have that famous Samson. 
as the major dish. Chapter one of Joshua, of Judges, excuse me, is the, the transition between Joshua and the time that the judges appear on the scene. So it, it gives us some information about what Israel is doing in this intermediate phase between Joshua and the appearance of the judges. And this shows us what begins to happen without Joshua, without godly leadership. Chapter 1 presents a process of degeneration in terms of Israel's relationship with the indigenous Canaanites. The move is from victory to partial victory. This is when they have dominance over the Canaanites, but they aren't able to expel them, to substantial losses when they just give up and start living with the Canaanites, and to defeat. So Dan is repulsed by the Canaanites, and they are just confined to the hill country. They're never able to, to claim their total inheritance. Now, so there are some interesting things that are going on throughout the book of Judges. There is a south to north sequence. So we begin at the bottom there with Othniel. He's from Judah in the south. Then Ehud is from Benjamin, a little further north. Deborah is from Ephraim. Gideon is from Manasseh. Jephthah is from Manasseh. And then finally Samson is from Dan. So there's this north to south movement that takes place both in that, in that beginning of the book of Judges and also in the, the main part of the book, the, the actual Judges. Incidentally, um, I need to make a correction. I need to correct my correction. <laughs> um, with Dan, they were initially given a tribal allotment along the, the Mediterranean coast, but they weren't able to claim their inheritance. They, they felt that their enemies were just too strong. They couldn't conquer them. They couldn't drive them out. So they just gave up and moved to the north. They moved clear up north of the Sea of Galilee. And I mentioned, I mentioned this in the first study that I gave on Genesis. And I said that uh, this area that Dan conquered up north was originally called Laish. And then in the next lesson, I corrected that and said, no, it was Lashem. Well, actually, both are right. <laughs> because in Joshua, it's called Lashem, in Judges it's called Laish. So I was right both times. It, it, it's like the old, uh, the old joke about, once I thought I was wrong, but I was mistaken. <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> Another thing that happens in the book of Judges is a contrast between Judah in the south and the, the northern tribes. Judges begins with a Judah that is both an exemplary tribe and has an exemplary judge, Othniel. Judah becomes more and more important as we move towards the Messiah, who eventually comes from the tribe of Judah. Judges ends with a Dan that is both a lackluster tribe and has a wild, unrestrained judge, Samson. 
The first judges are good, the next are morally ambiguous, and the last judges are more villains than heroes. The descending character of the judges seems to represent the descending state of the people. Not only is there a painful cycle that Israel keeps going through, but there's also a downward, a downward spiral. It keeps getting worse and worse each time that they go through this cycle. In the first four cycles, we're told at the end of the, of the cycle that Israel had rest for so many years. You know, they, they were given a number. But with the fifth and sixth cycles, we're not told that anymore. No longer does Israel have rest. They, they may be able, to, be able to put down their enemies for a short time, but their enemies are still there, still threatening. We can see this downward spiral in the way that the major judges treat the tribe of Ephraim. So Ehud incorporates the mighty men of Ephraim in his army. When he's chasing the, his enemy, he calls to his brothers, the Ephraimites, and they come to his aid and they, they become part of his army. But Gideon assuages the men of Ephraim when they complain about not being included in his army. So they come to him and complain and say, why didn't you, why didn't you invite us to participate in this endeavor? I think the real reason they, that they felt this way is not because they were felt slighted, but because they wanted to participate in the spoils of war. But anyway, Gideon was very diplomatic. He calmed them down and said nice things about them and told them how great they were. But Jephthah, towards the end of the period of the judges, he slaughters the men of Ephraim about not being put in his army. So then they come to him and complain. And he just kills them. Lots of them. He slays 42,000 of them. That number is more than in the census of, in the book of Judges of, of Ephraim's fighting now, that's more than the, that number. It's a larger number. So he, he killed a lot of people. Now, now here's a map of, of the movements in Ehud. We'll look at some of the uh, major judges. We don't have time to go through all of the judges, but we'll look at some of the major ones. The leader of, of the enemies of Israel under Ehud was a man named Eglon. And the, the Bible makes it a big deal about the fact that he was very obese. What Ehud did was he managed to get access to this king Eglon and he stabbed him. He assassinated him. And uh, the Bible gives us some graphic details about what happened. He, Stabbed him. Uh, he's a big guy. And he went right in there, and fecal matter came out, and <laughs> it was very messy. Um, I'll, I'll talk to you more about when when we get to the things that make you go. Hmm. So there's a, there's another picture of 
another map of, of the movements of Eglon. And here's a, here's a three-dimensional type map. So, so this Eglon had, had moved into, he, he uh, captured Jericho. And you can see with the red arrow there that Eglon, or excuse me, Ehud flees after, after he assassinates Eglon. Uh, the next major judge that we want to take a look at is Deborah. She's the only one of the 12 judges who was a woman. And you can see that um, you can, you can, there's a, um, a star, a flashpoint there where the, where the battle takes place in the, in the Valley of Jezreel. That's where the two armies meet. Um, Deborah and, and Barak, the man who, who helped her by leading the army, uh, they assembled their forces on Mount Tabor, and I'll, I'll show you some pictures a little bit of Mount Tabor. And then um, the map also shows that Sisera was the commander of the enemy forces. Remember, he fled from the battle after, after the Israelites were victorious, and then uh, he took shelter in the tent of Yael, Jael. And uh, she was the lady with the spike, handing with the hammer, let's put it that way. Uh, Deborah had given a, a prediction, a promise that Sisera would be killed by a woman. And when you read this about this prophecy, you think, well, pro probably the woman is going to be Deborah. But no, the woman was Yael. He was killed by a woman, but not by Deborah. There's another map of, of the forces of Israel chasing the enemy after their battle there by Mount Tabor. Here's a, a three-dimensional map. Now, the, the place where the, the Canaanite headquarters was up north of Israel, here at Azor, but they had come down around the Sea of Galilee and actually come up this way to engage the Israel in battle. It's probably down close to the Sea of Galilee where the El drove the spike through Cicero. Here's some, uh, some satellite images of, of the, the movements of the forces under Barak. And as I said, I'll get those posted eventually on the, the website. This is Mount Tabor. If you've been to Israel and you, and you stood on the top of that, the rooftop of that monastery where you could overlook the, the Valley of Jezreel, if you look off to your right in the distance, you'll see Mount Tabor. You can see it from, from uh, Mount Carmel. Traditionally, Mount Tabor was thought to be the Mount of Transfiguration. But I don't think that's very likely. Because if you read the Gospel accounts, you'll see that just before that happened, Jesus and his disciples were up north at Caesarea Philippi, 
So I think it's more likely that the Mount of Transfiguration was, was actually the slopes of Mount Tabor, or excuse me, Mount Hermon, not Mount Tabor. The next judge that we want to take a look at is Gideon. And here's a, an artist's conception of, of the army of Gideon putting the Midianites to flight. Now, somehow I don't think that Gideon's army was all that uniformly attired and equipped. <laughs> I mean, their uniforms looked like they were made by a fashion designer or something. I think they were more of a ragtag outfit than a, a well-trained army. But the artist does do a good job of, of capturing the, the terror on the faces of the Midianites as they flee. Now here, here's a, a map of the movements of Gideon, which once again is in that same general area where Deborah and Barak were in the, in the Valley of Jezreel. Um, the important thing that I want to point out to you here is the spring of Harod found in this area. Because I'll show you some pictures of that later on too. But you know the story of Gideon and how he, his army defeated the Midianites, not by force, but simply by a stratagem of, of using torches and trumpets. They made the Midianites think that there were a lot more of them than there actually were. And nomads generally don't like to fight at night. So this too was an important part of their strategy that, that the army of Gideon attacked at night. There's another map of the movements of Gideon and his men. I, I just love Israel because there are so many uh, good places to see in just a small area. Once again, you see Mount Tabor up there, and this hill of Morat. This is where King Saul, remember the witch of Endor? This is where he consulted the witch, uh, which was a big mistake. And it's also in that same area where Mount Gilboa is located. Uh, I think Mount Gilboa is right here. That, that's where the King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed. Here, here's a three-dimensional map of those activities of Gideon and his army. It's interesting that, it's ironic really that Gideon was reluctant to believe when God told him that he would have victory over his enemies. But when he sneaked up to the Midianite camp and he listened to a Midianite soldier tell about the dream he had, then he was on board. And I went, oh, sure, how's going to happen? <laughs> so he wouldn't believe God, but he wouldn't believe a, a Midianite. So this, this is also a map that shows 
the, the movements of Gideon and his enemies and, and their battle. That also shows in Harod, which is in the spring of, of Harod. So right around in here is the spring of Harod. It's right at the, the base of that Gilboa Ridge where, where uh, King Saul and his son were killed in battle. And here's some satellite maps once again of the movements. Herod was, was the place where Gideon took his army, which, which God said was too large. He had a little at none. On my last trip to Israel, my most recent trip, I had an opportunity to visit the spring of Herod. So once again, it's at the, at the base of that ridge, where uh, on top of that ridge is where King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed. The, the spring flows out of this cave at the base of the ridge. So there, there's the spring where it comes out of this cliff, or at the base of it. This is the place where Joshua, or excuse me, Gideon took his army. At first he had 32,000 men, and God said that's too many. So he sent all the ones home that were afraid, fearful, and he still had 10,000. And God said that's too many. So he took them to the spring of Herod, and the ones that healed down and drank water out of the spring that way were sent away. They were let go. Whereas the ones that cupped the water and brought it up to their mouths, they were kept, and there were only 300 of them. So we go from 3,000 to 10,000 to 300. There may have been as many as 100,000 Midianites. So if you look at it humanly, there was just no way that Gideon was going to beat Midian with this small army. But of course, all things are possible with God. After the spring at Harod, the water comes out and then it flows away in this, in this stream here. You can't do that with the Book of Mormon. <laughs> if we go to the Mormons and say, well, can you show me where such and such an event happened? They can't do it because, of course, Joseph Smith made it all up. The places in the Book of Mormon aren't tied to any real places. The places in the Bible are. The next judge that we look at is Jephthah. And with Jephthah, Jephthah in the fifth cycle, and Samson in the sixth cycle, we really see a rapid decline. So Jephthah is actually on the east side of the Jordan River in that area remember, that was occupied by Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And they had problems with the Ammonites. They were oppressed by the Ammonites. But Jephthah was called from Tob, and we're not really, really certain about where that was located. But he was brought down to Mizpah, 
and from there he went to attack the Ammonites. There's another map. Once again, we don't know exactly where Tob was located, but he went to Mizpah. And then he chased the Ammonites all the way from Aurora to Mineth. There's a satellite map moving, moving from Tob to Mizpah. And then going from Aurora to Mineth. We don't know, once again, exactly where Mineth was located. And then we enter the seventh cycle. And the major judge in the seventh cycle is Samson. And there are four whole chapters devoted to his story. The first thing that I want to point out about Samson is the women in Samson's life. First, there is his mother. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. Then there is a bride, then there is a prostitute, then there is a mistress. Now, for some reason, we tend to sort of complete all of these women and kind of merge them all together and just think of them as one person, but they're actually three different women. Uh, so, uh, Samson does, can marry, does have a bride. He marries a woman. Now, after he marries this woman, he has problems with his father-in-law. He goes to his father-in-law, and his father-in-law says, well, I thought you didn't want her, so I married her off to another guy. Well, Samson is not a happy camper. And you don't want to make Samson mad. <laughs> if Samson ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So it was after this incident, that Samson went and rounded up a bunch of foxes and used them as an incendiary device to send them out in the field to the, the Philistines. And this, this area, I'll show you some pictures of it, this area of the Shreya, the low rolling hills, that was where a lot of grain was grown by, by the Philistines and by the Israelites. The next woman that we're going to look at is a prostitute. Once Samson saw a woman, a prostitute. And this is the incident where Samson goes to the, to the city of Gaza down on the coast, one of the Canaanite cities, where this prostitute lives. And the Philistines are starting to scheme about how they, how they can do away with this guy. He's causing us a lot of trouble. And once again, uh, Samson is enraged, and he tears the gates off the city, and carries them all the way to Hebron. That's a long ways. And then the final woman, and this is the only one of the four that's actually named. We aren't told the names of these other previous three women, but this uh, mistress is Delilah. He fell in love with a woman. So the Bible says that Samson loved her, but it never says that she loved him. So apparently it was a, a one-way street. Sometimes he will, will speak of Delilah as a prostitute, but it's interesting that in Scripture, she's never called a prostitute. 
she's just Samson's mistress. She's not actually called a prostitute. Now, she did have a, a prostitute mentality in the sense that she would do almost anything for money, but she's never called a prostitute. And she's the one who, of course, who finally got Samson's secret out of him. The, the birth announcement of Samson was supernatural, rather dramatic. There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, so we're told the father's name, and his wife, whatever told her name, was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And so that son was Samson. I mentioned before how whenever the Old Testament talks about the angel of the Lord, I think it's a theophany. It's a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Because when the angel of the Lord appears to people, their tendency is to worship him. And the book of Revelation tells us that no normal angel will accept worship from human beings. But the angel of the Lord does. So I, I think the angel of the Lord is the Son of God. He is God. Now, it's interesting that the parents of Samson are told that Samson would begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines, as it says. So Samson has a beginning ministry, but not a finishing ministry. Because the Philistines still continue to be a threat to Israel on into the time of Samuel and King Saul and into the time of King David. So he's not ever able to completely overcome the Philistines, just to keep them at bay, you might say. When we look more closely at the, at the disciples 5 and 6, we see a good illustration of, of this idea of overlapping judgeships. So the Ammonites the Ammonite oppression of cycle 5 coincides with the Philistine oppression in cycle 6. So we have both of these things going on simultaneously for a while. And the judges of cycle 5, the, the major judge, Jephthah, and then the, the three minor judges, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon, they're all judges in the fifth cycle. And the last of those, Abdon, overlaps with Samson's 20 years as a judge. So you can see how the, the oppressions and the judgeship sometimes overlap. Here is a map of Samson's travels. He, he's born in Zorah, 
been in this area. And his wife is from Kumna, not far away. He travels down to the coast and, and then he goes to Gaza and you can see here how he takes the city gates from Gaza where the prostitute is, he tears them down, he carries them all the way to Hebron. That's a distance of 40 miles uphill all the way. <laughs> so Samson was quite a character. You can see a more three-dimensional map. And once again, you see how he travels down to Gaza, carries the gates all the way to Hebron. And there are some satellite maps of his movements. Remember, Zorro is where he is from. That's his hometown. And Kimda, not far away, that's where his wife was from. And he goes to Gaza, and of course, that's where he carries the gates. Now, here's some pictures of this area, the Shela, it's called. It's an area of low, rolling hills. The, the part of the country more inland where the Israelites lived, well, that's the, the rugged hill country. It's higher. And the Philistines lived down on the coast. And the Shrela, these rolling hills, these foothills, that's where the frontier was. That's where Israel came into contact with the Philistines. That's where they came into conflict with the Philistines. And one of the characteristics of, of the Shrela, these rolling hills, is that there are broad valleys in between the hills. And that's where Israel and the Philistines grew their grains down in the, in the valleys. This is the modern village of the Zorah, right here. And the place where Samson's wife came from was just over the hill, just not far away at all from Zorah. You know how Samson met his demise. He was finally captured after he revealed his secret to Delilah, and then he was turned over to the Philistines. He put out his eyes, and they used him as just a, a joke, a laughing stock. They used him for entertainment, but he was able to push down the pillars that supported this temple of Dagon. And not only did he kill himself, but he killed many Philistines as well. And we are told then his brothers and all his father's household came down took him, brought him up, and buried him between Zora and Eshtaol, so in his home area, in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus, he had judged Israel 20 years. And there's what is believed to be the tomb of Samson in that area, in that Shelah area. After we run the course of learning about the judges, 
Then we have these two stories. One story is about Micah and the Levite, and the other story is this horrible story where the concubine is raped and killed and cut in pieces, and then there's this war between Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. Some people think that, that these two stories are just kind of an appendix. Some scholars think this, that they're just kind of an appendix that was added on, but I don't think so. I think there's a, there are ties between the stories of the judges and these two stories that follow. We read about Micah, a man named Micah. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Now Micah, even though he lived in the, the country, the hill country of Ephraim, he was a Danite, the same as Samson. And we are also told that he stole some money from his mother. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. So he had taken his money from his mother. And then from that money, she took part of the money and made a god, an idol. So Micah set up his own shrine, his own worship center, right there, where he lived. Now what's interesting about this, and why I say there's a possible tie between this and the story of Samson that precedes it, Micah was a Danite, just like Samson, and he stole from his mother 1,100 pieces of silver which just happens to be the same amount of money that the Philistines paid to Delilah for turning over Samson. We don't know this for sure from Scripture, but it's possible that Micah was the son of Samson and that his mother was none other than Delilah. So, once again, we don't know that for certain, but that's an implication of, of this passage. So Micah and the Levite. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. So he was a Levite living in Bethlehem. The Levite travels from Bethlehem to Ephraim, where he becomes Micah's private clergyman, his, his private priest. But then the men from Dan up further north come down and say, well, why be just a priest for one man where you can be a priest from a tribe? So he moves from Bethlehem to Ephraim to Dan. Once again, there's that south to north movement. The other story about another Levite, not this Levite, but another Levite, and his concubine, and how she is raped and killed, and then the, the Levite cuts her up in pieces and sends her to all the tribes, and they all come together to fight a war against Benjamin, a civil war against Benjamin. I think that this war with Benjamin 
is foreshadowing what will happen later with King Saul. And there are several interesting parallels here between this story about Benjamin and Saul later on. The Levite dismembers his concubine. Later on, Saul dismembers a yoke of oxen. Gideon and Jabesh Gilead are prominent in the story of, of Judges 18 and 20 about this war with Benjamin. Gideon is Saul's capital, and he rescues Jabesh Gilead. The Benjaminites are almost annihilated in the book of Judges. Well, it just so happens that Saul is a Benjaminite. As a result of what happens in the book of Judges and what happens with Saul, Israel's first king, and it doesn't turn out so well, the Benjamin, Benjaminites get a bad name throughout much of the Old Testament. But eventually that's turned around because Esther is a Benjaminite. And she rescues Israel through her action. She delivers Israel. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is a Benjaminite. So eventually the tribe of Benjamin does get a good name. And we can be very thankful that the Benjaminites weren't wiped out. Otherwise, he wouldn't have the Apostle Paul. In Judges, an old man from Ephraim hosts the Levite. That's who's host, hosts him and entertains him. There's a man from Ephraim. Samuel, a man from Ephraim, hosts King Saul. There are only 600 Benjamite survivors. Saul has 600 followers. So there are many parallels between Judges and the start of King Saul later on. Now, a couple of things that make you go, mm -hmm. Ahud was a judge early in Israel's history in the book of Judges. Remember, he's the guy who goes to kill, to assassinate his king, who's the head of their enemies, and blind. And after Ehud assassinates Eglon, this big guy, this police guy, it says that Ehud shut the doors of the other room behind him and locked them, locked the doors. So how did he do this? How, if Eglon, excuse me, if Ehud locked the doors when he was inside, well, then he couldn't get out and escape. But how could he lock the doors from the outside? Because he didn't have a key. So how could, how could he lock the doors from the outside? The passage tells us that they, the servants of, of Eglon, waited to the point of embarrassment. The reason they waited, <laughs> I mentioned to you that when Ehud stabbed Eglon, some fecal matter came out. So it says that his servants 
thought he was using the toilet. Well, I can probably smell <laughs> So they, they waited because they thought he was using the, the toilet. But when he didn't come out, he never came out, uh, they went and got a key and unlocked it, the doors. And then, when, of course, by that time, everyone was dead. So their, their master was dead. But what's going on here with, with the key, with the lock and the key? Well, there's a passage in the Song of Solomon that helps us to understand this. The reason that this verse in Judges might be puzzling to us is because we're thinking of doors and locks in terms of how they are today. Well, that's not how they were in the ancient world. This is the passage from the Song of Solomon. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch open. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers flowing with flowing myrrh. On the handles of the bolt I opened for my beloved. So what's going on here? How, how can he thrust his hand through the latch open? Well, in order to understand that, we need to have some understanding of how locks work in the ancient world. See, there was, a, there was an opening. Now, the reason that Ehud could lock the door from the outside was because all you had to do was reach through that opening and slide the, the bar to, to lock the door. But when you locked the bar, the door, what happened was there were pins and there were holes in this, in this bar. And when you shoved the bar into place, the pins dropped down into the, to the bar, securing it. In order to unlock the door from the outside, you needed a key. And in our day, you can carry a lot of keys in a ring in your pocket or in your purse, as the case might be. But in the ancient world, you couldn't do that because keys were big. They were 10 inches long, 20 inches long. And they looked sort of like a big toothbrush with a bent handle. So what you did was you stuck your arm in and you, you lifted up those bolts, those uh, pins, that had dropped down into the bar, you lifted it out, and then you could pull the bar open. So that's how understanding how locks worked in the ancient world helped us to understand how Ehud could have locked the door from the outside without a key. The other thing that's very puzzling, very perplexing, very disturbing in the book of Judges is Jephthah's rash vow. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So after Jephthah had defeated the Amorites, he came home. 
Then Jephthah came to his home and Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot break, cannot take back my vow. And the daughter said this to her father Jephthah, Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. Understandably, she didn't want to spend her last few days with her father. <laughs> she wanted to be with her friends. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Uh, this is a, an illustration of a house in ancient Israel. So over here you have storage and, and a workshop and kitchen and that type of thing. Back here you have the, the living quarters. And over here you have a place where livestock was kept. Now, some people try to excuse Jephthah's behavior by saying, well, Jephthah was expecting that the first thing to come out of the door would be one of the livestock. Um, I don't buy that because even if he did think that, surely he must have considered that there was a good chance that it wouldn't be an animal that came out of the door. Other people say that, well, Jephthah didn't really sacrifice his daughter. He just required her to be celibate for the rest of her life, and she served at the tabernacle. Now, it is true that women did serve at the tabernacle. They baked the, the bread of the presents. They sewed the curtains and so on. But I don't think that is, is the case either. I think that Jephthah actually did sacrifice his daughter. He actually did offer her as a burnt offering. There are only two instances in the Bible where one of God's people, anyway, is going to offer their offspring as a burnt offering. And those cases, of course, are Isaac and Jephthah's daughter. There are some parallels between the two. Isaac is Abraham's only son. And of course, the, the uh, Muslims have a big problem with this because they would say, what do you mean his only son? Ishmael was his son too. <laughs> and according to the Quran, 
Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael. So, that, so that the Muslims have a problem with this idea that Isaac was Abraham's only son. But anyway, Jephthah's daughter is his only child. So, so they have, Isaac and Jephthah's daughter have that in common. Isaac goes to a mountain, Mount Moriah. And the daughter also requests that she be allowed to go to the mountains. Of course, there is a big contrast between the two events because in the case of Abraham and Isaac, God supplies a surrogate sacrifice. God had instructed Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. In the case of Jephthah's daughter, God supplies no surrogate sacrifice. God had not instructed Jephthah to make his rash vow. He did that on his own. God didn't tell him to do that. But in spite of his shortcomings, Jephthah does make it into the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. Jephthah is included there. So is Samson. And there are two other judges who are, well, one of them is an actual judge. Uh, Gideon is included in there, and also Barak, who worked with, uh, with Deborah. So that's the book of Judges. And we can see that it's a very, in some ways, it's a very depressing book. But we can see, once again, how it points out the inability of man to overcome this continuous cycle of sin. And it points the way to a future deliverer who would come to Israel, who would enable us to overcome that cycle of sin, and would deliver us from the threat of eternal death. So, that concludes the book of Judges. Next time we'll look at verse 7.